You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. Imagine it's a clear, cool evening in October. Bundled in a warm coat, steaming coffee in hand, you are wandering the streets of Charlottetown, Prince Edward Island, the capital of Canada's smallest province. Despite its size, the island has an impressive amount of legends, owing in part to its maritime location and somewhat isolated population. You are out tonight in the brisk autumn air in the hopes of hearing just a few of those legends. The night is clear and cold. The moon hangs pale over the harbor. The streets are quiet. The only sound you hear are your own footsteps, the soft rustle of a few freshly fallen leaves, and the occasional dog barking somewhere far out of sight. So far, you've been regaled with stories of ghost ships and great fires, spectral soldiers and haunted paintings. Now your guide, a young man clad in late 19th century garb and carrying an antique lantern, turns a corner and leads you up a boulevard lined with colonial homes and golden heritage trees. Passing beneath an enormous oak, you spot a church spire rising in the distance and feel a gust of wind on your face as the land breeze rushes past you on its way out to sea. You cradle your coffee in both hands and your small group continues for another block before huddling on the corner. A freestone church, a beautiful example of early Gothic revival, looms in the darkness just across the lawn. Your guide gestures toward it, and you gaze at the spire now towering above you, an opaque angle stabbing 130 feet upward into a star-filled sky. The guide begins to speak. This is the St. James Presbyterian Church, better known by its congregation as the Kirk of St. James. It was constructed and dedicated to the glory of God in 1878, replacing a smaller, more humble structure from 1828. Like the belfry before it, this tower houses the church's single copper bell. Now, for almost two centuries, the sound of that bell has echoed through the streets of Charlottetown to call the faithful to service. It has also celebrated weddings, marked the end of war, and chimed in solidarity in trying times. For our purposes tonight, its most noteworthy performance might be the death knell, a signal to the community that a member of the congregation has passed away. Now, few people want to hear church bells in the middle of the night, and fewer sextons want to roll out of bed, walk to the church, unlock the doors, climb the bell tower, and sleepily ring the bell. So it quickly became customary to only ring the bell between dawn and dusk. If the sun is set, the bell is silent. Now, that's the way it's been since the first kirk was built. Except for one occasion, when, according to legend, the bell was rung by four mysterious phantoms. You're listening to Fireside Canada, my podcast about Canadian legends, lies, and lore. I'm David Williams. Tonight, we'll be examining a story from Prince Edward Island. Two stories, actually. The first is a tale of four phantoms and how their appearance one early morning may have served as a supernatural and unrecognized warning of an impending disaster. The other is a true account of how negligence, incompetence, and cowardice led to a terrible shipwreck that shocked a community. 
one ghost story and one historical event that, in time, have intertwined to form a single legend. This is the tale of the Phantom Bellringers. There's something special about ghost stories. They have a universal, timeless quality. They're told in every part of the globe and passed from generation to generation to frighten and to thrill, sometimes to educate, to pass on a social taboo and to warn those who might transgress it, but mostly to entertain. A ghost story's episodic eeriness and temporary terror can quicken the pulse, sharpen the senses, and allow us to safely take delight in the dreadful, all experiences that are doubly welcome as the nights grow long and cold. Ghost stories are most often a communal experience. Huddled around a fire or bundled in sleeping bags or beneath a shared blanket, we sit steeped in the drama, anticipating the familiar twists and turns, the common climax we've heard a hundred times before, whether in that particular story or in others like it. And that is perhaps one of the main reasons we love them so much. In telling these stories, we bond over a shared adrenaline rush, and the act of exploring and experiencing our fears, both primeval and personal, in a safe and intimate setting. We play at and indulge in our fears, sometimes even enjoying them in the moment, because we know the story will end, and once we catch our breath, the strange and the supernatural will be gone, and we will return again to our comfortable lives. There are times, however, when our lives aren't so comfortable. And when a ghost story, shared and celebrated by its community and attached to a true event, can be not just another spooky tale, but a comfort. There are times when a ghost story's familiarity and predictability can lend structure, security, control, and meaning to an existence where those things are in short supply. Such was the situation, perhaps, in Prince Edward Island during the late 19th century, when a disastrous and deadly shipwreck shook the coastal settlement of Charlottetown and spawned a ghost story that, to this day, is still regarded as one of the best and most memorable that the maritime provinces have to offer. This story is so memorable, in fact, that it has managed to all but eclipse the historic event that inspired it. Tonight, you'll hear both. I'll tell the classic ghost story that has been shared since at least the turn of the 20th century. Then we'll piece together the story of the tragic shipwreck. We'll also discuss how the ghost story may have served as a strange and unexpected coping mechanism for 19th century Charlottetown, a community where risking one's life on the open water was an everyday occurrence, and where the idea of a predetermined death may have been far more comforting than the notion of a life lived in the grip of an unpredictable landscape fallible humanity, and his passionate chance. Part 1. The Tolling Bell Let's head back to that evening tour in Charlottetown. You're gathered at the corner of Fitzroy and Pownall Streets, gazing at the historic Kirk of St. James. Your guide begins to speak. In the early morning of October 7th, 1853, a local sea captain was walking northeast from his home in Brighton to a stable here in Charlottetown. The sun had not yet risen, and the world was still and quiet, save for the scattered leaves blowing along Brighton Street and crunching beneath his boots. In those days, Governor's Pond stretched north, all the way from the harbor to around the point where Brighton Road becomes Euston Street, connected by a small bridge that ran west to east over the pond. It was there, just before the bridge, where the captain heard the sound of a bell. It sounded like a ship's bell, but he couldn't be sure, 
It was faint, dampened and distorted by the thick fog that hung in the air. And it was odd. It was just before dawn, the sky was dark, and he knew that no ship was scheduled to enter or leave the harbor for hours. He counted the tolls. Seven. Eight bells. The nautical signal for end of watch, but the timing was off. It was barely six o'clock. He thought that perhaps it was a foreign ship ringing a fog bell as it made its way into what would be, for them, unknown and fog-bound waters. Curious, he crossed the bridge and headed south toward the harbor. He stopped at the entrance to Government House. A strong gale blew in from the straits, and he scanned the horizon. In the gloaming of pre-dawn, he could see the rough surface of the wind-blown water, a few masts rocking gently in their moorings, but nothing beyond the wharves, certainly no ship and crew that might be striking a bell at this strange hour. The sound came again, now a dreary, constant toll, and the captain reasoned that if it wasn't coming from a ship on the water, it must be a bell ringing somewhere in town. But that was stranger still. It was a Friday, and far too early for services. Following the hazy sound of the intermittent bell, the captain walked further into town and turned up Pownall Street. He came here, to the Kirk of St. James, and for the first time that morning, the captain was not alone. Sure enough, the church bell was ringing, letting out eight clear tolls as he arrived, and as he gazed across the lawn to the church entrance, he saw three women dressed in white standing on the threshold. He walked toward them, the bell sounded again, and he instinctively looked up, catching a glimpse of a fourth woman through the window. When he looked back at the entrance, he saw for a moment the three women inside the church before the doors abruptly swung shut. The captain climbed the steps, grabbed the handles, and pulled, but they were locked. Just then, the church sexton arrived. He, too, had heard the bell and had come to investigate. After trying the doors a second time, they peered through the side windows and saw the translucent white form of a woman glide up the stairs that led to the belfry. The sexton ran back home to fetch his keys as the captain stood guard, and as he waited, he swore he could hear, mixed with the whistling wind, gentle footsteps and the murmuring of women's voices coming from the tower above. Minutes later, the sexton returned with the key and the minister not too far behind, and all three men unlocked the doors and entered the church. There was no sign of the women, no sound except the rushing of wind and the groaning of old wood. Slowly, the men began their ascent to the belfry. First the stairs, then the ladder, and the tower began to shake from the force of the gale outside. The bell rang out again, barely audible over the howl of the wind. The sexton hurried to the trap hatch, flung it open, and climbed up into the belfry with the captain close behind. No one was there. Both the captain and the sexton had clearly seen a woman come this way, but the belfry was empty, except for the two men, a bell rope that was neatly coiled and stowed, and the bell itself still vibrating. The sexton blamed the wind, saying that the gale had somehow rung the bell so clearly. But at the urging of the captain, he was forced to admit defeat in his attempts to explain the apparition. The captain was more rigid in his belief. He had arrived before the others and was certain that he had seen four mysterious women in white standing in the darkness at the foot of the church. Somehow they had vanished, 
a fact that made it obvious to him that they were part of some sort of supernatural visitation or vision. But who were these women, and what did this encounter mean? These questions would weigh heavily on his mind, but he didn't have to wait long to get his answers. Later that day, a steamship named the Fairy Queen would sink halfway between Prince Edward Island and the mainland, killing multiple people. News of the disaster would reach Charlottetown the following day, along with this eerie fact. Four of the victims were women, three of whom were members of the Kirk's congregation. Many believe that the phantoms the captain had seen were the spirits of those who would soon lose their lives, and the tolling bell was a forerunner, a warning of a coming disaster. The story has come to an end, and your guide wastes no time. He turns on his heels and beckons you to follow him to the next stop on the tour. For many, this will be the last time they think about the doomed ship, the Fairy Queen. Certainly, the story will linger. The tale of four phantoms ringing a church bell is as memorable as it is chilling. But the ship itself seems secondary. It's part of a ghost story, after all. A medium where the truth can be stretched a little, and where the historical events are often contorted to fit the narrative, to anchor the legends in reality and make them even more scary, more believable. Besides, this was a time when shipwrecks were rather commonplace and unremarkable. A quick look at Wikipedia tells us that, worldwide, at least 277 shipwrecks occurred in October of that year alone, most of which belonged to the United Kingdom or British North America. In fact, the Fairy Queen was just one of six vessels that had wrecked that day. The deaths were tragic, of course, but certainly the real-life account of the sinking couldn't be more frightening than the tale of four phantom bell ringers. Could it? You can decide for yourself. Here is the story of the sinking of the Fairy Queen, reconstructed from eyewitness testimony. Part 2. The Fairy Queen Just before noon, on October 7, 1853, about five hours after a certain captain saw four mysterious women ring the bell of a local church, a steamship named the Fairy Queen left Pownall Wharf in Charlottetown, Prince Edward Island. The vessel was a familiar sight in the community, used to transport passengers up and down the coast and across the Northumberland Strait. On this day, it was assigned to serve as the Packet, a role that would see it ferrying the mail and passengers from Charlottetown, Prince Edward Island, to Pictou, Nova Scotia. It was several hours behind schedule. The vessel's master, Captain W.R. Belgi, had delayed departure on account of high winds and rough seas, no doubt the same gale that shook the Kirk's Belfry earlier that morning. While they waited for calmer waters, it's alleged that some of the crew spent that time in the local tavern, Hours later, the vessel departed two hands short, either because they couldn't be found or they were too drunk to work. Later, some passengers would testify that the captain and some of the crew seemed intoxicated and speculated that they had brought more alcohol on board. Perhaps that was why the crew seemed so disobedient and unruly, allegedly treating the captain with open contempt. Or maybe it's just because the crew was composed of mostly random people who were hanging around the wharf and looking for work. The vessel herself was in equally rough shape. 
By most accounts, she was an absolute mess, certainly not up to traversing the nearly 90 kilometers between the island and the mainland. She was old, oddly designed, and she leaked constantly, but her engineer decided the pumps were sufficient to keep her dry. The tiller rope, a vital part of the steering, had a habit of breaking, and should have been replaced by a chain long ago. There was no axe on board, no life preservers, no spare rope, and dangerously little fuel. The sail, a backup resource in case the engine failed, was tattered and thin. It was boasted that the Fairy Queen could carry up to 100 cabin passengers, and a ship its size should have had four lifeboats. It only had two. Though perhaps that didn't matter, because the lifeboats only had four oars between them, when they should have had four to six oars each. Her exterior was a mosaic of quick patch jobs and sloppy carpentry, partly masked by a fresh coat of paint. These shortcomings would become all too apparent when the vessel cleared Point Prim, entered open water, and a wave broke open the gangways. Injured but undaunted, the Fairy Queen pushed on, until the steering rope snapped. The second time in six weeks, making her impossible to steer. The ship veered in the wind and was broadsided by another heavy wave. Some of the passengers and crew worked together to repair the rope, but it had been broken and spliced so many times that their first attempt came up short. They had to untie it and try again, losing precious minutes as the wave struck again and again across the side of the vessel. Eventually, the crew regained control, but the ship was sluggish, and she was slow to get on course. She broached to every so often, taking on more water. Word came that the boilers were low on fuel, and the passengers scrambled to find more. They ran through the vessel, smashing doors, furniture, anything that could feed the flames. They ran to the boiler room and threw their scraps upon the fires, and though they managed to generate a little more steam, it wasn't enough. The boilers flooded, the fires went out, the engine stopped, and the pumps, integral to keeping the leaky ship afloat, seized altogether. The captain dropped anchor, hoping that the drag would turn them into the wind and they could use their sail to get to shore. But that chance never came. Many passengers, exhausted from splicing the steering rope and gathering fuel, were now knee-deep in freezing water, frantically bailing and desperately hoping they could keep the ship afloat until help arrived. Now you might have noticed I've been talking a lot about the passengers rather than the crew, and that's because most of the crew seemed disorganized and indifferent. As the sun began to set, one passenger suggested that the crew hoist a signal light to get the attention of passing ships. He was promptly ignored. Others tried to motivate the crew and get them to help bail water or do something to help keep them afloat, but had little success. Night fell, and four or five crew members simply abandoned their posts, dropped the lifeboats, pushed through the passengers, and climbed inside. They would sit there for almost two hours, tethered to the sinking ship, refusing to help any further. Eventually, the majority of the crew would quietly join them. A number of passengers went to the captain and demanded to know why the lifeboats were launched without the women on board. He promised them that he would descend into the remaining, larger lifeboat and hold it steady while the women climbed in. 
However, once he was securely inside, the ship's mate either cut or released the rope, and they simply drifted away, to the shocked screams and terrified calls of over two dozen souls. It was 11.30pm, around 12 hours after the Fairy Queen left Charlottetown, when both lifeboats left the vessel, and the majority of the passengers behind. The largest boat could hold 24 souls. It only carried five. The captain, the mate, two engineers, and one passenger, along with the mail, and allegedly the captain's best clothes. The smaller boat could carry 10 people. It only carried four. The ship's clerk, two firemen, and one passenger. That's nine people out of a total of 26. That left 17 people, mostly passengers and the young cabin boy, abandoned in the middle of the night on a derelict steamer sinking in freezing water. Those who were left behind shouted to the men in the lifeboats and begged them to come back, if only to rescue the five women on board. It was no use. The lifeboats vanished in the darkness. The abandoned continued to bail until the water reached their waists then climbed to the upper deck and rang the ship's bell, hoping that someone, anyone, would hear it across the water and come to help. An hour later, around 1 a.m., the vessel, flooded and battered by the surging waves, finally broke apart, washing most of the victims into the sea. The hurricane deck remained mostly intact, and nine people managed to struggle aboard and huddle, shivering at the center of the wreckage while a tenth person clung to a separate makeshift raft. One survivor recalled seeing three women struggling desperately towards some floating wreckage, but when he looked up again, they were gone. A total of seven people, three men and four women, vanished beneath the waves. Most of their bodies were never found. The rest floated helplessly for eight agonizing hours until just before dawn, when their makeshift raft washed ashore. They were exhausted, hypothermic, and starving. Later, one survivor, a Mr. Edward Lydiard Esquire, recalled how, when the vessel was first sinking and the sun was going down, he had grabbed a number of candles, shoved them in his pockets, and ran through the ship lighting every lantern he could find. That morning, he discovered and ate an entire leftover candle just to have something in his stomach. The community reeled from the disastrous loss of life and the shocking inhumanity of the crew. It was hard to imagine how anyone could be so selfish and callous to take the lifeboats and simply leave when there was more than enough room for everyone on board. It turned out that three of the female victims were Eliza DeWolf, her sister Alice, and their maid. Eliza and Alice were the young granddaughters of a respected Nova Scotian judge and members of a prominent family from the region. The captain, the mate, and others who abandoned their posts were quickly arrested, and everyone wanted to know how this could have happened, and who was to blame. Fingers were pointed at the crew, of course, but also at the ship's owner, James Whitney, who apparently had a reputation for cutting corners, and the local government, who were responsible for inspecting the vessel. 
According to an article at the time, island politicians had claimed that an inspection report proved that the vessel was seaworthy, but when they were asked to produce the document, they admitted the report didn't exist. Apparently, when the Fairy Queen first came to the island, an advertorial bragged that, quote, experienced and practical engineers amongst ourselves have pronounced her machinery to be in perfect order, end quote. As it turned out, the experienced and practical engineers were actually members of the local administration, together with their family and close friends, and the only thing they inspected was a private picnic voyage around the island, complete with champagne. The disaster became a political scandal, and like most things involving politicians, the investigation yielded very little insight, accountability, or justice. On October 28, 1853, Captain Bellye and most of his crew went before a grand jury in Pictou, Nova Scotia, and were indicted for manslaughter. They were released on bail and ordered to appear at a later date in Halifax. While the politicians squabbled and blamed each other, the captain and his crew got off on a technicality. It turns out that the court had failed to list the residences and occupations of the grand jurors, and that was enough for the case to be thrown out. Eventually, the story passed into history and was forgotten. But the tale of the phantom bell ringers lives on. And I find these two stories fascinating. Not only is it somewhat unusual to find ghosts and a shipwreck together in the same story, but this is also a rare example of an actual historic tragedy that is not just accompanied by, but overshadowed by a gothic tale. With very few exceptions, whenever the tale of the phantom bell ringers is shared on a haunted tour or recorded in a book of ghost stories or local legends, even when Canada Post announced a new stamp on the subject, the details of the Fairy Queen's demise are never mentioned. We hear about the four women, of course, because they correspond with the four phantoms seen earlier. But there's rarely any mention of the three men who lost their lives, the ten others who were left for dead, or the alleged cowardly actions of the crew. Here you have a celebrated piece of Canadian folklore that's still popular today, while the actual historic event to which it's connected is all but forgotten. Why? Well, one reason might be because, in many ways, the legend of the phantom bell ringers can actually be a comfort to those who are made uncomfortable by the horrors of the sinking of the Fairy Queen. The horrors not just of the event itself, but of the stark reality that allowed it to happen. Perhaps, for the people of Charlottetown and the Kirk's congregation, this ghost story became a mechanism to help them make sense of and cope with that reality. To understand what I mean, we need to understand what it meant to live in Prince Edward Island in 1853. Part 3. The Context Prince Edward Island is Canada's smallest province. It's also one of the country's oldest settlements and one of the most isolated. It's a beautiful pastoral island with rolling hills, warm beaches, red sandstone cliffs, and world-famous farmland. Nestled in the Gulf of St. Lawrence, the island was finally connected to the mainland in 1997 with the completion of a 13-kilometer bridge. It is, in fact, the world's longest bridge over ice-covered water. In some ways, the island is its own little world. 
PEI is known for its plentiful potatoes, its striking red soil, and perhaps less so for its singing sands, a rather noisy white silica sand that's unique to the province. There's even a specific fungus, Janula apiospora, found only on the island. In 1977, when CBC, Canada's public broadcaster, finally came to PEI, they had to give out free FM radios. That's because the CBC was broadcasting on an FM signal, a signal that, despite being used throughout the rest of the country for roughly 17 years, was virtually unheard of on the island. Most people only had an AM radio and were confused, so the CBC did what it could to spread the word. That sense of isolation was far more profound in 1853, a full 20 years before PEI would officially become a Canadian province. Shortly after the sinking of the Fairy Queen, Lieutenant Colonel John Hamilton Gray, a prominent local politician and future premier, wrote an open letter to a local paper that criticized then-premier George Coles and, at one point, urged the formation of a local militia to replace professional troops who were being withdrawn. He wrote, quote, We all know that the troops of the regular army are about to be withdrawn from this colony, and yet you appear determined to shut your eyes, as others did in the case of the Fairy Queen, to the inevitable consequences of our unprepared state. We should, ere many months, be visited by a few privateers under an enemy's flag. I would fain press upon you the necessity of such an organization of local companies as would enable us to do something more than be passive spectators of our wives and daughters violated before our eyes, our houses burnt, and stock driven, as I have seen in other lands, I, and in two British colonies. End quote. In this analogy, the waves that tore apart the Fairy Queen and drowned seven souls are akin to a looming invasion force of enemy privateers who, he was certain, would seize any opportunity to violate the community's wives and daughters and burn their houses to the ground. You can feel the fear in these people, whose lives and livelihood, safety and security depended on a government who, they hoped, would stay vigilant and proactive and act with the people's best interests in mind. So what do you do when that hope literally breaks apart and sinks in the waters just offshore? Well, maybe you tell a ghost story. I mentioned earlier that the Phantom Bellringers have always been regarded as a warning to the community that they would soon receive news of death and disaster. With this perspective, the sinking of the Fairy Queen is transformed from a completely preventable accident caused by negligence and incompetence to an inevitable disaster caused by fate. Now, this transformation is beneficial in a few ways. Politically, it helps people avoid all those hard questions that crop up in a scandal like this. Who's to blame? What could have been done differently? What actions can be taken now to ensure this never happens again? If this was an act of God, then no one's to blame, and nothing needs to be done. It's out of our hands. Thoughts and prayers. This shift from preventable to inevitable is psychologically beneficial as well. Remember, the Fairy Queen isn't just a random vessel. It was the packet, the mail carrier, the public ferry. For many, it was a key connection to the outside world. To realize this vital link can be severed so easily that people can die as a result of callousness, negligence, and incompetence is terrifying. 
But with the right story, we're able to soften the blow. Certainly the sinking was tragic, but it was fated and in the hands of God. The deaths of four women is especially shocking, but if their ghosts were seen ringing the bell of the local church hours before the accident, we can take comfort in knowing that their deaths were preordained and that their spirits live on in salvation. Part 4. Shifting Stories The story of the phantom bell ringers has been told countless times throughout the years, often with little changes, some of which help to shift the themes from chaos to comfort even further. One storyteller notes that the Fairy Queen sailed with 13 passengers and 13 crew on a Friday, and suggests that perhaps this unlucky numerology may have played a part in the disaster. Other tellings change the weather from a windy but unremarkable day to one of sudden and violent storms. With that change, the Fairy Queen isn't so much a victim of negligence and incompetence, but of uncontrollable nature, what insurance companies call an act of God. Some stories go so far as to alter the time and even the point of departure. Imagine if word of the captain's encounter with four spectral women had reached the ill-fated passengers of the Fairy Queen before they put to sea. It's possible that they would have taken it as a sign and chosen to wait for the next sailing, or perhaps seek better transport. But that would interfere with the purpose of a forerunner. Forerunners tell us not what might happen, but what will happen. A man who sees his double knows that he will die soon. A woman who hears a knock in the middle of the night or the clock strike 13 times at midnight knows that death is on its way. So, in some versions, the Fairy Queen is already either in open water, in the middle of sinking, or even completely destroyed when the captain from Brighton first hears the tolling of the bell. Sometimes the portentous nature of the story is removed completely, and the captain hears the bell at midnight, after the Fairy Queen has sunk, but before the news has reached the community. Finally, others change the known facts and tell us that Charlottetown was not the point of departure, but rather the destination, that the Fairy Queen sank on its way to, rather than from, Prince Edward Island. In any case, these versions remove what little agency the captain from Brighton or the victims might have had to attempt to stop the tragedy. In these retellings, the passengers could never have been warned because they were a world away, in another town or already at sea, when the church bell chimed its solemn tone. As I mentioned earlier, the three other victims of the Fairy Queen are rarely mentioned, most likely because they complicate the story. The captain saw four women, so the stories mention the female victims and leave it at that. It's unclear if the ghost story was ever told in earnest by a real captain from Brighton, but it's not a stretch to suggest that the story may have become so popular because of its ability to help people cope with the loss of those four female passengers and the brutal reality that their loss suggests. Every death is tragic, of course, but the needless and completely avoidable deaths of four women would have been particularly hard to take. This was just one year after the sinking of the HMS Birkenhead, an event that popularized the phrase women and children first and made it an unofficial code of conduct for seagoing vessels. And then consider that two of the female victims, Eliza and Alice DeWolf, were only 22 and 21 years old. If that's not sad enough, according to some, 
Eliza was on her way to get married and, presumably, live happily ever after. As for brutal reality, according to DeWolf family folklore, one of the sisters actually attempted to board a lifeboat but was hit on the knuckles by one of the crew, cutting her fingers. That being said, there is an alternate story that does mention all seven victims. It exchanges the four ghostly women for seven ghostly lights. In this version, the lights are seen entering the kirk at midnight, often accompanied by seven tolls from the bell. That brings me to the final element, the bell itself. In some stories, the bell plays a dreary, constant peal. Sometimes it rings seven times for the seven victims. But in most stories, it tolls eight times. Why? While no one can say for sure, I have a few theories. In the early days after the wreck of the Fairy Queen, it was thought that eight people had died in the tragedy, but eventually another survivor was discovered and that number changed to seven. So it could be that the eight bells are a holdover from those early days. Alternatively, the eight bells could be a reference to naval tradition. At sea, eight bells signal the end of watch, and so eight bells have been used in sailors' funerals to mark their passing, their final end of watch. Perhaps the phantoms rang the bell eight times in maritime mourning for themselves and for the others who died at sea. Unlucky numbers, surprise storms, shifting times and locations, forgotten victims. These changing details, together with the motif of four phantoms or seven lights and their tolling church bell, transform a simple yet horrifying story about human fallibility and senseless death into a story about God, nature, superstition, spirituality, and fate. We're taught to view these things as valid explanations for tragedy, that they have a hand in the ways of the world and that we're powerless to stop them. They are the unseen mechanisms of reality, like the unseen energies that drive the ocean's waves. We're expected to accept and move on, with sadness, certainly, but without any anger, frustration, or fear. Anger, knowing the tragic event could have been avoided. Frustration, knowing that nothing will be done. And fear, knowing that we could be next. Some of our most popular stories of death and disaster include a part where someone is punished for violating certain social mores or cultural values. A good comparison in this case might be the sinking of the Titanic. When the unsinkable ship, an enormous shining symbol of man's hubris, is defeated by a simple iceberg, it's certainly sad but also strangely fitting. Man was punished for his pride and both the vessel's architect and its captain went down with the ship. But compare that to the Fairy Queen, a rusted-out garbage heap that had no business being on the water. The captain and most of the crew abandoned their duties and passengers and escaped relatively unpunished. It's all so nihilistic. But by sharing the story of the phantom bell ringers, one can find a little hope in an otherwise hopeless situation. We can make it a story where, if the guilty can't be punished, at least the innocent can be saved. If not in this life, then the next. That's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening, and for joining me in becoming part of a Canadian folk tradition. 
Now that you know the story, share it. And remember that sometimes reality can be more frightening than any legend, and the past can haunt us as effectively as any spirit ever could. Special thanks to the administration and congregation at St. James Presbyterian Church in Charlottetown, Prince Edward Island. The sound of the tolling bell you heard in this episode is sourced from a clip of the actual church bell and is used here with their permission. An additional heartfelt thanks to Ian Scott of their Heritage Committee for sharing his knowledge and research. Fireside Canada is written and recorded by me, David Williams. Sound design and mixing is by Ryan Clark. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider giving this podcast a positive review. If you want to help even further, you can provide story ideas and more through my website. Every little bit helps to keep the fire burning and the library of legends growing. Learn more at firesidecanada.ca.